Handel. I'm the regional director of Chalife Lime in West. On behalf of Project Chai, the Bellows National Crisis Intervention Program, Chalife Lime Midwest and Madregos Midwest, we want to thank you for joining the Seedlings Program. Together, we strive to meet the physical and emotional needs of our community. We hope that you enjoy tonight's event and we encourage you to reach out to us for guidance. And remember that even when you are isolated, you are never alone. In light of recent tragedies in the community and the pandemic, our goal is to bring to you tools and inspiration to carry you through this difficult time. We begin tonight's program and are honored to hear from Rabbi Dr. Fox, David Fox. Rabbi Dr. David Fox directs the crisis intervention, trauma and bereavement support services for High Lifeline internationally. He's a forensic and clinical psychologist practicing in Beverly Hills over the last 40 years, while also a graduate and medical school professor. He serves as a rabbi, a dayan, and publishes in both fields of mental health, science, Torah, and halachic thought. Feel free as well, the bottom of your screen, to uh, submit questions at any time, and our Dr. Fox will be addressing them at the end of both presentations after we hear from Rabbi Robinson. Rabbi Fox. Well, good evening and thank you for welcome, welcoming me back to your Kahila. And it's an honor, but also a delight to work in tandem with two very wonderful organizations, Madrigos and High Lifeline. And knowing that their staff and their very important avoda is so devoted to your community gives us on the other end of the continent a feeling that Chicago really has developed a kahila. And my bracha is that all of the ideas and the lessons and the sincere feelings that are generated this evening will further lead to the Kehillah growing and bonding. We're going to be reading on Shabbos, Parshas Vayera. And there's a novel thought in the Radak, not a well-known Radak. And he queries the nature and the number of challenges of Nisyonus that our patriarch Avram Avinu was exposed to. And he wonders how is it that a Kodesh Baruch Hu repeatedly subjects his faithful servant to so many different types of oppressive trouble. He deals with famine, he deals with exile, he deals with exile again. He deals with warfare and hostage taking. He's exposed to other people's illnesses and ultimately he faces the supreme challenge of the Akeda, 
And the Radak wonders, what is this about? And did Avram Avinu ever stop and ask why? Not just the ubiquitous question of why me, but why all of this? How many times must I prove my faith and my loyalty and my dedication to Hashem and to his mitzvahs and to his values? And part of the Redux answer may be relevant for many of us tonight, many of us who face pandemic and face difficulties in selves and loved ones in family, those who are beset with the suffering and sometimes with the bereavement and so much as coalesced, has cavalcated in such a relatively short time. And it's been ongoing and it's been catastrophic and it takes its toll. And sometimes we sit back and we ask, why again, why again? So what the Redak suggests in part is that this is a legitimate part of the Nisoyen that stopping and wondering why does it keep happen that for some is transcending the physical parts of challenge of illness of oppression because it seeps into the intellect and it probably also dribbles into the neshama itself that we're struck and we're stuck and we're puzzled and we're wondering why does this keep happening and that is part of the Nisoyan, and it's a legitimate part of our response to pause, to ponder, to wonder, to hurt and to ache and to ask questions. Let's understand a little about the science of crisis and trauma. And let's do that by differentiating between what we'll call stress and distress. And stress generally refers to what's going on in our environment that's taxing to us, that's impinging on us, that's changing the way we do things. And so we put under that rubric, that category of stress, pandemics and accidents and other illnesses and financial burdens and disruption of family life and deterioration of normal schedules and routines and not being able to go to school, not being able to go to shul. So many of the environmental challenges that take place outside of us are known as stress, sometimes crisis stress, sometimes traumatic stress. And in a case like we're all reeling with right now and your holy Kahila is certainly experiencing, we call that catastrophic stress or catastrophic trauma because it keeps happening and we don't see an end in sight. 
and science hasn't offered us a light at the end of the tunnel, nor a well-defined tunnel. And that is stress. What goes on inside of us is the distress. They're symbiotic, they're related, they're fairly well understood as cause and effect. But as the environmental stress in our atmosphere, in our climate, in our community, in our concerns about health, in our concerns about well being and welfare, all the things that I initially outlined, as that stress accumulates, so our internal distress is going to rise. And it's normal under the circumstances with which we are challenged to experience distress. It is not normal not to have distress. And this is our starting point as parents, heads of families, in looking what's going on with our children and looking at what's going on with ourselves is to recognize that it's not normal not to react, not to experience some distress. And let's look at the dimensions in which we as human beings at all stages of development and virtually all ages Let's look at the dimensions in which we experience our distress. We are sponges for the stresses that surround us. That's a term that Chazal used in Pirkeiavos, that we are a slog. Most of us are not good filters when we're caught off guard we absorb it all. We might think of ourselves like Teflon and believe that nothing should or will stick to us. But the reality is the way Kaddish Barhu has circuited our brains and our bodies, we're Velcro and everything sticks to us. And the dimensions in which we have that sponge absorption and that unfortunate, unhealthy tenacity to hold on to our distress. So the dimensions, let's go through them and acknowledge them. That we and our children and our teens and our parents, virtually all ages and across the developmental lifespan, our thoughts are affected. For example, it's common to worry more to replay things in our mind. It's common to have certain images and memories that shocked us, that startled us, that scared us, to have those memory images keep coming back. Hard to kick some of those memories. At times, in terms of the thought dimension, it's hard to concentrate. Or variously, at times we become hypervigilant and hyper alert extremely sensitive because we're afraid. So there are a whole range of cognitive or thought changes that human beings commonly experience when they are inundated 
like that sponge with all sorts of worries and all sorts of stresses. And it's not only our thoughts, but let's also recall as caring, loving parents of kids that our emotions and our children's emotions are affected as the stress begins to overload them. And it's very, very common for our emotions to be activated. And a perfectly happy, carefree youngster now may be brooding and now may be crying. And we see emotional impact in the form of heightened anxiety and panic and fear. And we see emotional changes in the form of depression, deep sadness that can't be shaken. And we want to be mindful that it's normal to have emotional distress when there is too much stress. And our body is a third dimension. Our bodies are affected by environmental inundation as well. Whether or not a person has contracted an actual condition, a virus or otherwise. But when we are beleaguered by so much and too much going on, it's common not to feel good or to feel weak or to be very, very sleepy or not to be able to fall asleep, to have changes in appetite, changes in energy level. There are a host of psychophysiological conditions which I won't enumerate, but the body is a third dimension where it's very, very common to find that ourselves or our children are not feeling good. They're not operating well physically. And a fourth dimension is our behavior. Our behavior often relays, it reflects, it generates a lot of that internal turmoil that may be showing up in our thinking or in our emotions or in our physical sensations. But we act that out behaviorally and that might be something like withdrawing and just not wanting to participate. Our get up and go, got up and went. And we can have behavioral changes in the form of increased agitation, becoming more hyper, not being able to sit and to focus and being restless all of the time. And sometimes that behavioral dimension shows an increase in aggressiveness. And sometimes it shows up more clinically in the form of unusual habits, odd mannerisms that reflect to the caring parent how much distress your child is in. He or she is doing nervous tics or pulling out their eyelashes these can happen in the body dimension and in the behavioral dimension. And there's a fifth dimension. And that is what we know as our spirit. And for religious God-fearing observant people, our spirit can be affected during times of excessive stress. It might lead a person to becoming much more invested in religious practice and ritual or 
much more intense in their praying and in their studying or feeling a lapse of drive and motivation because that's a spiritual change as well. Or it might involve the Radak questions. Why is this happening? And searching for some venue, some type of outlet to try talking it through in your spiritual monologue to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, hoping it would become a dialogue. And even people who are not observing, not involved in a formal religious practice, but the spirit gets affected and the spirit, the energies of the spirit, the kochos anefesh, those include the ability to feel hope, the ability to feel taken care of and to feel safe in the universe, the ability to feel that our faith matters to us. So these are spiritual changes which are very common when we are surrounded by stresses. Now, this applies to children and this applies to ourselves also. So I want to segue from the idea that this applies to ourselves and suggest to the parents who are listening this evening that if we want to be there for them, if we want to be the best parents for our distressed children during times like this, we have to start with self-awareness. As adults, we're not Teflon. We're not impervious or immune to the feelings of distress. The same ones I outlined, all five dimensions. And it's not a deficiency in your piousness or your righteousness. It's not a defect in the level of your intellect. It has nothing to do with how mature you are. It is normal to be affected when stress is excessive. And it's not normal not to be affected even for a healthy adult. Yes, there is a percentage in the population, in the religious observant Jewish population as well, of people who really do decompensate during times like this, meaning their mental health is affected. But for the rest of us, we're really not talking mental health, we're talking about mental hygiene. And mental hygiene means that we have to be self-aware, we have to recognize and acknowledge how this is affecting us. And we have to have strategies for ourselves so that we can fight off or we can adapt effectively to the distress as it mounts inside of us. The mental hygiene foundations, as we become aware and we acknowledge what's going on inside of us and acknowledge means that literally a couple times a day, we pause, we breathe a little bit and we scan ourselves, we need to do this. I'm saying this as a traumatologist, clinician, but I'm also saying this as a rabbi, that this is part of self-care, this is part of nurturing ourselves that the Torah expects of us means that not only are you engaged in healing when necessary, but you're engaged in prevention 
as much as you can. That's nishmarta and, and we need to scan ourselves. What's going on in my thinking? What are the emotions that are troubling me? How am I doing physically? How am I functioning behaviorally? And in what ways is this showing up in my avoda, in my davening, in my learning, in my temperament, in my relationships? We need that self-scan. We need to be self-aware. And when we pick up indicators of stress in ourselves, find someone to talk to. Maybe your spouse, maybe your chavrusa, maybe your rebbe or your rebbitzin. But find someone who you can ventilate, you can articulate what you're noticing about yourself. And find someone who will listen to you in a non-judging, non-critical way and won't give you a lot of rapid advice, but will let you sort it out as you talk and they'll listen supportively and they'll give you encouragement. And that's how we take care of ourselves. But now let's cross the bridge now that we've talked about self-awareness and self-care and let's talk about the other essence of tonight's webinar. How can we be there for our children? How can we be there for our children, our family, as well as for ourselves? So again, let's recall that our children react. And they're not always having the capacity for self-awareness because they're young. But we remain attentive to them and we probe with them. Let's take a look at how you're doing. Let's talk about it. It's normal for them to react. And it's a blessing and a gift if you engender with your children enough trust and warmth that they'll begin to open up to you and what I said before about self-care, that we want to find someone with whom we can share and express our internal distress, who won't judge us or criticize us. This is exactly the same in our task as parents, because when your child's in distress, we have such a knee-jerk reflex to say, oh, come on, don't cry. Worst thing to say, because if they're crying, they need to cry. And we, we let that happen, we nurture it. Crying's healthy when you're sad, crying's healthy when you're hurting. If a child expresses a thought that seems irrational or unnecessary to us, or it's based on a misperception, our rejoinder is not, oh, shouldn't think that way. Just like if they express an emotion our response is not going to be, oh, you don't have to feel that way. You should stop feeling that way. We want to listen non-critically, non-judgmentally. We want to woo that processing of what they're going through. And our response is supportive listening. And sometimes it's the benign, quiet smile, goading them on to continue talking, knowing that it's safe to entrust you with what they're going through and that you're going to problem solve with them together eventually, but you're not just going to spout off advice because you have to convince the child that you care enough to listen and you want to know what he or she is going through. Remember, self-care is vital. It teaches us how to be caring for the children who need us to care. Something I've emphasized in the last seven months in all these webinars and lectures 
whether to parents or to rebellion or to teachers or to manahalim, that we have a Nisoyan that's actually quite wonderful. It's hard to find something nice or positive during this time of crisis and tragedy, but, but something that's quite a blessing, a hidden blessing is that we have a chance as parents to model for our children how a Jewish adult with Yuras Shemayim faces Nisayim. And what that means is, if we're going to take our distress and we're going to take our worry and we're going to take our fear and we're going to spill it over onto our children by showing them how obsessed we've become with bad news or we're breaking down in front of them or all we talk about is the negative or we develop a cynicism in our worldview or we unload in front of our kids. So what we're doing is we're modeling all of the wrong things. We're entitled and we need to have our normal reactions, but with our children, we're there to be enlightened, caring, inspiring models of how we deal with stress. And we bring Kodesh Barucho into the dialogue with our children when they can understand value and appreciate it. And we say supportive things and we talk with hopefulness and we give them an optimistic edge, not when they're talking about their misery, but in the way we talk about how we're facing the challenge and giving them that higher threshold to aim for so that they recognize that there is a way to cope and there are healthy ways to adjust. And there is a mahalach, there's a paradigm for adaptation. We model that, we have an opportunity to be wholesome role models for our children of how a person who is mature and together and has Yerushalayim can impart that image to children. So let's be mindful of this. Part of the querying, the questioning that your children at times have when there's so much catastrophe around them and there's so much fear, particularly adolescents, um, they're, they're bothered by the existential questions, sometimes pre-adolescents also. And they have religious spiritual quandaries are going through. And they may get up the courage if you open the door through your positivity and your supportive encouragement, they may get up the courage to tell you what's troubling them. And they ask the why questions, why us, why them? This person lost a child, this person lost a family member, this person lost a spouse, why them? They're good people. They're, they're holy people, they're rabbis, they're mental health professionals, they're clergy, why them? And we have to have a response. And our response for the why questions can't be pat answers. We have to share in the child's mystery, the teenager's pondering 
and, and we don't attempt to answer the why questions. We don't have answers for them. And we tell them that this is part of the Nisoyan, that it can take many, many years of reflecting and developing a wisdom before we have answers to some of those theological polemics. And the more pragmatic questions that children of all ages ask you, when's it gonna end? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to feel? How do we talk to that child who lost his parent? He's my classmate. So if you have the insight and the sophistication and the tools to respond at an age appropriate level, do so. Don't tell them things which aren't true. Don't tell them things that are just to imply that there's no problem, validate that there are stresses. If you don't know an answer, direct them lovingly to someone who does, or tell them that you don't have an answer, but it's an important question. You're going to research it and you're going to find the facts. We always want to caution our children who are having stress and who are having the reactive distress and who are aware that other people they know are suffering or having difficult times. So we want to caution our children not to engage in gossip and not to engage in rumor. Rumor control is damage control. And if they hear things, scary things, frightening things, astounding things, and they don't know that they're absolutely true, you tell the youngster that the first stop is to come here and talk it over with me but not to repeat it to other people if you don't know that it's true. Not to engage in something that could backfire and could hurt someone if you repeat something that's only a rumor. And you wanna give that message to children. They come and they talk about it with you or with a trust, trusted teacher or Rebbe. But you wanna keep that, that open door evident to your youngsters because this is all about dialogue. This is all about garnering trust with your children that you won't turn them away or ignore them. You will nurture them and support them because they are having stress in their lives. They're having distress in their insides. Couple more thoughts only because I'm waiting to hear my beloved colleague who I admire greatly, Robbie Robinson had the treat to hear him before. We've spoken together at some conventions and I know he's the one you've tuned in for tonight. But just to wrap up with some thoughts, I spoke about the concept of mental hygiene. Mental hygiene is like Purell for your brain. It's what you do to keep yourself sanitized. And some of the foundations for assuring that in your home, in your family, that you maintain mental hygiene is as much as possible during these times with lockdowns and quarantines and worries about going out in the streets, um, as much as possible, restore a routine that parallels or mimics the routine that you and your family are accustomed to. So bedtime is still bedtime and wake time is still wake time and meal time and family time, but you put into your daily and your nightly routines, all of those milestones along the daily track 
and that establishes a sense of familiarity and it restores in families the feeling that we can handle this. We know what to expect in our own home, even if we don't know what's going on in the big world. And schedule, make a schedule and, and adhere to the schedule because if we have this, at least this illusion that we're in control of our day and our night and our time, this is a stabilizer and it helps quell some of that free floating anxiety that's part of our distress. And structure, bring structure into your home with your kids. And structure means there's gonna be school time, hopefully, and davening time, hopefully, and work time, but there has to be play time, there has to be creative time, there has to be family bonding cohesiveness time, and there has to be time for solitude also. But we structure into our day the activities, the productive activities, the creative time and the downtime also. So routine, structure, schedule, those are the pillars that make the foundation for a family to be mentally hygienic. And lastly, although the many, many stresses threaten to tear us apart as families and even as communities, what with not knowing about attending school or going out or shopping or being able to go and daven and with the mask or without the mask and social distance or anti-social distancing, all of these changes in our reality, um, we can't let it splinter the family. Families have to get better and closer at a time like this. You really have to carve into your home time when the family enjoys being together. And that means at mealtime, if you can arrange to eat your meals together as a family, if you're in the house at the same time, don't talk politics. That's in Isoyan right now. Don't talk pandemic at mealtime. And don't talk about other people at mealtime. But talk about yourselves as a family, how are we doing? Swap stories, reminisce, family memories good memories, but you have to really etch into your family life, cohesiveness time where there's a Menachem Meshav Nefesh. There's this feeling that when we're together, there is a lot of warmth, there is a lot of love, there's a re-spiritualization. And it's nice to be part of this safe family. So those who are able to do that, whose families are intact, or as much as you can engage in restabilization of the family through warmth and cohesiveness. This is a wonderful time to do it. It's the Ir Miklat, it's the island in the storm, it's the haven that you want to make your home into during times of so much stress. Hashem Yisborach, Rofi, Chole Amo Yisrael, Manhig Olam. Metiv Lakol, Kodesh Baruch, who is with us, we turn to him, we trust him, we have faith in him, we pray to him, and he answers us. Shalom Sometimes that answer is vivid and audible, and sometimes it just bounces off like an echo from the distance. But stay close, stay loving, stay caring. Relate to your kids and communicate to your kids. Shower them with your time and your attentiveness. Be supportive. 
subtly insert your optimism, which should replace the fatalism and the cynicism and the pessimism. And Kodesh Baruch Hu, Okorov, should bring an end to the Tsar and healing for all that is causing so much pain in the world. And we should be Thank you so much, my Dr. Fox. Um, I want to just remind everyone there's opportunity for questions on the bottom of the page. You could click your questions and you could ask questions anonymously as well either to Ali Fox as well to uh, Ali Robinson. I'm just going to introduce now, although I think most people know Rabbi Robinson on this call, unless we've received calls from all over, all over the world maybe. But Rabbi Robinson, uh, for those that don't know, is the Rabbi at Beis Medrash Mokrachayim, as well as the Executive Director of the Midwest Hagodis Israel Council of Synagogue Rabbanim. Thank you so much, Rabbi Robinson, for joining us. And we look forward to your words of inspiration. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. I want to start with a couple of thank yous to thank High Lifeline and Madrigos Midwest. Thank Rabbi Crandall, uh, Mrs. Karish, Rabbi Bressler. And thank them for everything they do for our community, first of all. To thank them for organizing this particular event and to also thank them for the opportunity to speak to you tonight. It's a tremendous chus for me to be part of this panel. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Fox is someone that I personally call in my personal rabbanis for advice and guidance. And it's a chus for our community to be able to hear from him tonight and to learn from his wisdom. My tefillah is that everyone that needs a refuah nefesh and refuah saguf be zoicha to that refuah shlema. Uh, my tefillah is that tonight should be a source of insight and strength uh, for yourselves and your families and for all of us and I could certainly say I've already gained from what Dr. Fox has said tonight, and hopefully I'll be able to add just a little bit. So the world in general, Klal Yisrael in general, and our community specifically have endured a tremendous amount over the last eight months. One can argue that there has not been a calamity as universal as the calamity we're dealing with since the times of the Mabel. But the Mabel itself, actually pales in comparison in two ways. First of all, the Mabel didn't touch Eretz Yisrael, and what we're dealing with right now is touching Eretz Yisrael. And no pun intended, we were promised by HaKadosh Baruch Hu there would never be a second wave of the Mabel. And unfortunately, we're feeling the brunt of a second wave around the world. But not just the pandemic, which we've spoken about many times, but the tragedies that our community has faced recently over the last month and times before that. And not to mention the anxiety and the worry that people are feeling right now surrounding the election. The amount of inquiries that I've received about people making Aliyah directly related to the elections, perhaps that's an upside of it, but people are definitely feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety, a tremendous amount of worry. It's very hard. It's very hard to have perspective and it's very hard to have stamina. First, first things first, which I think is very important to stress. And really that was one of the points that Dr. Fox spoke about is that this is in reality extremely traumatic. It's in reality very scary, and extremely confusing. 
And this can engender within us feelings of sadness, anxiousness, occasional anger and worry. And we have to understand that those feelings are real. They cannot be suppressed. And one should never feel guilty about the feelings that they have, because that's who they are. And it's not a sign of a lack of emuna in any way we have those feelings. They have to be dealt with appropriately. The Ramban writes that it's okay to cry when someone dies. It doesn't mean that you're crying because you don't believe in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's ways. You're crying because it hurts. And it does really hurt, and therefore we're allowed to feel that pain. Frustration is unmet expectations. It's normal to have this, this distress. It's normal to have these feelings that we're having. And therefore we have to manage our expectations. They have realistic expectations of ourselves and of our families. It'll make it much easier to be able to handle the stresses that we have in our lives right now. Hopefully tonight they'll be able to gain some life skills and some perspectives to give us extra strength to be able to endure the challenges that we're facing. So the title of tonight's presentation is Being There for Them, Being There for Yourself. Now, to be clear, I'm not criticizing the title. And the proof that I'm not criticizing the title is because I was part of the group that made the title. But in reality, based on the topic tonight, it should be the other way around. Be there for yourself so you can be there for others. Because that is a reality. If you don't have self-care, you don't take care of yourself, it's nearly impossible to have the ability to take care of others. If you do not have the inner strength and understanding, it's very hard to give over strength and understanding to other people. So similar to the oxygen masks that come out of our plane, that we have to put it on ourselves first to be able to take care of others around us. There's a great tzaddik in New York, someone I consider one of my personal rabbi, Shmuel Dishon Shlita, that he told me that one year in camp, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was speaking to the counselors in Camp Torah Vadas. Rabbi Dishon at the time was a counselor. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zerzach asked them, what is the shayresh, what is the root of the word hashpa, which we translate usually in English to mean influence. And the boys all screamed out shefa, which means an abundance, to give an abundance over to other people. And Yaakov Kamenetsky said that's partially true, but the deeper understanding of the word hashpa is the word shipua. Shipua is an angle, an angle. Why? Because when you're able to pick yourself up and bring yourself to a higher level, when you have that abundance, when you have that shefa and that bracha, and you're overflowing with it, then that could flow down to all the other people around you. And that's why it is so important to have self-care, to fill yourself up, to be able to roll down to your family and to other people around you. And it's really important not just to be one step ahead. I had a very close Rebbe of mine that became an expert on Tanakh. He actually wrote the commentary on several of the volumes of the Archful Tanakh series. And he explained to us as his Talmidim how he became an expert on Tanakh. It's not so usual in the yeshiva system to be an expert on Tanakh. And he said that he was a Rebbe in a high school and he was fed up of being one Pusik ahead of the Talmidim. He taught Pusik Dalid the next day, he prepared Pusik Dalid the night before and Pusik Hay prepared Hay the night before. But that's not the way to teach. That's not the way to give over. You have to be filled with the information to be able to properly give it over to the Talmidim and to other people. So he said to the Manal of his school, I'm going to take off an entire year and I'm going to become an expert, a topic expert on Sefer Shmuel. And then I'll teach it to my Talmidim the next year. And the Manal allowed him to do so, which was the broad-mindedness of this particular Manal. And he became an expert on Tanakh. But it really taught me this lesson. It's not good enough just to be one step ahead. You have to properly fill yourself up to be able to pour that down, that shefa, 
to our children and to our families and to our tamidim, to our friends, to our colleagues and our neighbors and everyone else that's around us. And that's really this idea that we're talking about. Be there for yourself so you can be there for others. One reason why it's so important to be there for our families is that we cannot rely upon others to do the job for us. The mitzvah of chinuch is one of the primary focuses on this week's parsha. This week's parsha has the well-known pasuk, which is one of the sources of the mitzvah of chinuch. Hashem says, I know about Avram Avinu, how conscientious he is, how focused he is on the chinuch of his children. But we know that the source in the Torah of the mitzvah of chinuch is parsha's emor. Emor ve'amarta. Rashi says in that pasuk, when it's talking about the halachas of tumas kohanim, that a Kohen cannot become defiled, coming in contact with a dead body. The Torah says the word emor twice. Emor ve'amarta. Rashi teaches, what do we learn from here? Teach it to yourselves and teach it to your children. And this is one of the primary sources in the Torah of the mitzvah of chinuch, of educating our children. Now, there's a very basic question that we could ask. Could there not be a nicer source in the Torah of the mitzvah of chinuch? Couldn't the mitzvah of chinuch be given by Shabbos? Couldn't it be given by Yantiv? Couldn't it be given by Tzitzis, by Tfilin, by Ben El Mechaveir, teach yourselves and teach your children Why is the source of the mitzvah of chinuch the halachas of Tumas Kohanim? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And what's the following, I believe, sharp and profound answer and a tremendous element of truth to it. If you have a father that's a kohen and he sends his kid off to school, he knows very well that there's not going to be a curriculum in school on the halachas of Kohanim because 99% of the students are not Kohanim. And therefore, the father who's a kohen knows that if he wants his child to have this information and to know what it means to be a kohen, to know the halachas of Tumas Kohanim, to know the halachas of Nesias Kapayim, of Duchening, he has to do it himself. He can't rely upon other people. And so too, when it comes to the Mitzvah of Chinuch, it's specifically taught in the context of the halachas of Kohanim to teach us that yes, we have our schools and they do a tremendous job. But particularly when it comes to the concepts of Emuna, when it comes to our Hashkafas, we have to understand that we have to model and teach our children. We cannot rely upon other people. The responsibility rests on our shoulders. So I understand this is a tremendous amount of pressure that it puts on us, that it's upon us to try to teach this to our children and to model this for our children. But at the same time, it should be highly motivational. There's an idea that I share very often is that what gives us the ability to have zrizis, to be motivated, to be zealous, to be committed to a cause? Well, there's two basic parts of the recipe. One part of the recipe is that we appreciate how important the cause is that we're engaged in. And the second part of the recipe is when we realize that we're the ones that can get it done. When we realize that it's so important and we're the ones that are able to do it, then we'll get it done. The mashal I always give is someone who's an anahatzala call. When they get that call, they go running out the door. They run into their car. They grab their bags. They come to the scene in a matter of seconds, in a matter of minutes. What gives them that motivation, that zrizis? It's very simple. They understand that saving a human life is supremely important. And they also understand that they're the only ones that can do the job. The combination makes them go. But let's say one of those two are lacking. Let's say, for example, they knew ahead of time that someone stubbed their toe and had a broken toenail. They're not going to feel as motivated to run into their car and to save the day. Or let's say they know that there's 15 or 20 other Hatzala members that are closer. Well, then they're not going to necessarily run because they're not the ones that are able to do the job. It's the combination of those two things. And if we realize how important the chinuch of our children is, and we realize that really only we can do it, 
that should motivate us, not suppress us, not burden us, but motivate us to try to do whatever we can to fill our tanks, to be able to mashpia, to give over that shefa to our children. So that's why it's so commendable for all of you to be here tonight. You're filling your tanks, Bezaz Hashem, and hopefully you'll find some wisdom and insight to be able to be not just one step ahead, but to really be as filled as possible with some of these fundamental ideas, be able to give it over to your children to share with others as well. I wish I could give a comprehensive approach that really takes multiple shirim and even 20 minutes or the 10 minutes we have left. It's impossible, but hopefully you'll have some nuggets and some wisdom that'll be gained from some of my thoughts. In August, 2002, my wife went into labor with our oldest child. We came to Mount Sinai Hospital in Baltimore and we came into the triage room and they attached the heart rate monitor to my wife. And all of a sudden, all pandemonium broke loose. Running to the phone, and all I could hear them say was emergency C-section, emergency C-section. A team of doctors and nurses come running into the room. They whisk my wife off out of the triage room into an emergency surgery room to have an emergency C-section. No information, no knowledge, no clue what's going on, no access to the room, no chair. I literally sat on the floor in the hallway, saying to Helen and crying. Three minutes later, they came out of the surgery room and said, oh, don't worry, everything's okay. We're not doing the emergency surgery. I said, what happened? Please explain to me what happened. They said, let's get back to the room. We'll settle down, then I'll explain to you what happened. And the nurse explained to me as follows. She said that it's very normal in the overall process of time that the heart rate monitors are attached that you see different dips in the heart rate, you see spikes in the heart rate, but in the broad picture of seeing the overall heart rate, those are all normative, those are all normal. When we attached the monitor, all we saw was a massive spike. Without the context of seeing what was before and seeing what was after, it was so scary. But we gave it a little bit more time and realized everything became normal, everything calmed down again, and Baruch Hashem, we do not have to do, well, she didn't say Baruch Hashem, I'm saying Baruch Hashem, we have to do the emergency C-section. And she said, Mr. Robinson, you have to understand the lesson in life. When you have the full, full perspective, it's less scary. When you only see a narrow sliver of the story, things can be very, very scary. This is one of the basic you say this that we have in life. We don't know the answer to why. But the reason we don't know the answer to why is we don't have the full picture. I saw an unbelievable insight in this week's parsha directly related to this idea. I never saw it before. It's a powerful question. Hashem is about to destroy the city of Sodom. And Hashem says, Can I hide from Avram what I'm about to do? And therefore I have to inform him, give him a chance to daven on behalf of the people of Sodom. Ask Rav Dessler in the Michtam Meliyah the following question. It's interesting to use the word, should I hide from Avram? Saying the word, should I hide from Avram means Avram really should know this information on his own. And the question is, how can I possibly hide it from him? But why would Avram know what Hashem's secret plan is? How would Avram know what Hashem plans on doing with the city of Sodom? Rather, it would have possibly made more sense for the Pasuk to say, how can I not tell Avram what I'm going to do to the city of Sodom? Does it really make sense to say, how can I hide from Avram what I'm going to do to the city of Sodom? And Dessler answers as follows. The default mode of every single human being, which is what we experience in the womb. The Gemara Nida tells us that we're in the womb, there's a candle above our head that we see, 
one end of the world to the other. We see the full picture inside the womb. But Hashem says, when you come out into the world, I'm going to conceal it. I'm going to hide it from you so you get a free will. So it's a challenge. So you don't clearly understand my ways. So Hashem was saying, normally I hide things from everybody, but you really on your own, the default is you should know everything. But I hide it from you. This one thing I can't hide from Avram. I let him go back into default mode to see on his own my mystical ways, my mysterious ways. But that's what we're talking about over here when you have the full picture that you're able to understand. Without the full picture, you cannot understand. The problem is, is that we live here in this world. It's 2020. It's tough. And we cannot see the full picture right now. We only see the sliver and things are very scary and things are very worrisome and they make us very sad. So how do we gain strength right now without seeing the entire picture? So just for a minute or two, I want to share with you a classic idea in Amuna. But the idea I'm going to share with you, which is always important to review important ideas in Amuna and the Chazer and to put into our Kishkos, put into our guts and really believe these ideas. But I want to add one little detail to be the focus of what I want to speak about tonight for the little time we have remaining with each other. There was a book that was written by someone that suffered a terrible tragedy. It's a fairly well-known book. And he had a hard time grappling with the fact that how could a benevolent God do such terrible things in this world? And the thesis of his book is, is that there must be forces of evil in this world that God cannot control. Because it can't be a benevolent God can do things that seemingly are bad. Now, aside from that thesis being heresy, I don't even find it comforting. Would you rather live in a world that has forces of evil that cannot be controlled? Or would you rather live in a world that is being fully controlled by Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, by our Father in Heaven? We don't always understand. But as the Chaybos HaLavavos tells us, that Hashem loves us more than we love ourselves. And therefore, everything He does somehow is an expression of that love. And the muscle that's often given to bring out this idea is that sometimes a child has to go in for a procedure. They have tubes put in their ear, tonsils taken out. In that moment of separation, when the child is looking at their parents and saying, how could you let go of me? How could you let me go through this pain? How could you let me go through this suffering? But after the surgery is over, despite the fact that it was a painful process, they don't feel well. They go running to the parent. because They know it came from the parent who loves them. And even though they don't understand, if my parent did this to me, it must somehow be out of love for me. It must be somehow, in the big picture, is what has to happen. Well, so too, when it comes to my Kaddish Baruch Hu, I'd rather be in a world that everything comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Avinu who loves me. That's a classic idea. And we have to understand and appreciate that. I'd like to add the following idea. Imagine this child comes out of the procedure and their parent is not in the waiting room. There's another person there. And the nurses say, um, by the way, um, the person that brought you to the surgery, um, that was your adopted parents. They adopted you. But this man sitting right here, he's your biological father. Go, approach him, give him a hug. The child is not going to run into the arms of this man. They don't have that relationship. They don't have that bond. They don't have that same trust. And therefore, they don't have that same willingness and yearning to run into the hands of that father when they never had that relationship. And to draw that back to our mushal and our nimshal, is that when we go through these struggles in life and we hear about these ideas that we have to understand it comes from our Father in Heaven, well, the more, it's not binary. It's not either you believe in Hashem or you don't. You believe Hashem is your Father in Shemayim or you don't. But the more you're able to build within yourself that relationship with the Kaddish Baruch 
that bond with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that sense that the Kaddish Baruch Hu loves me personally and my entire family and all of Klai Yisrael, the more you're able to build up those feelings, the more you're going to be able to manage through the struggles of life and understand that even though I don't know why, and I will not know why until 120, but still just a certain level of comfort knowing that it came from a Kaddish Baruch who loves me and who cares for me. And therefore, the oversimplified summary of everything I want to say tonight is, is that not just focusing on past tragedies and focusing on the pandemic in the past, but to fill ourselves up moving forward into the future, the more we can work on building a personal relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, a personal awareness of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, a personal sense that a Kaddish Baruch Hu loves me and my family and all of Chai Yisrael, the more we'll be strong and have the ability to endure the challenges that come along. To live a life of Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samit, of Ki'ata Imodi, of Einoid Milvada, that is what we have to be able to build up within ourselves. Now, how do I make Hashem part of my life? There's a lot that can be said, but two basic pieces of the recipe are is that one, you have to talk to Hashem. And number two is you have to talk about Hashem. And the more you talk about Hashem and the more you talk to Hashem, the more it becomes a reality of your life. A very important part of life in general is talking to others as well. If you need help from a therapist, a psychologist, someone who's able to give you that support that you need to talk through your problems, that's an important part of the recipe. But tonight we're gonna to focus about talking to him and talking about him. Talking about him. Talking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, make it real as part of your life. The Pasuk says in Hallel, emanti ki adaber, and the Svarim tells us this could also mean at a deeper level, I believe because I speak about him. The more I speak about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the more I believe and have a moon in Hashem. Learn and repeat stories about Hashkacha Pratis, about the presence of Hashem in this world at your Shabbos table. Learn as a family at your Shabbos table living in Muna, the Svarim of Shem Pinkus. A brand new translation of the Chovas Halavavas, which should be a textbook for all of Klai Yisrael to learn the Chovas Halavavas is Shahar Bitachan. And then take it to the next level. Don't just say over stories that you read in the latest Rabbi Chrome book, the latest Rabbi Spiro book, which are so inspirational, but to feel on a personal level that he loves me, tell over stories of your personal life how you sense Tashkacha Pratis. Now you might say, but I don't have those stories. They don't happen to me in my day-to-day life. And the answer is, you just don't have your eyes open to see them. My wife, before we got married, taught in Beis Yaakov in Baltimore. And she used to give extra credit on her tests for girls that would write down little stories of Ashkacha Pratis, of divine providence that happened in their personal lives. And when she first gave out this assignment, the girls complained, but we don't have stories of Ashkacha Pratis. Well, she said, well, for a couple extra points on the test, you're going to find them. And sure enough, they came flowing in. Because it doesn't have to be these grandiose stories that can make it into an art scroll book a regular story that just shows that you have a kiss from Hashem. A story that I always love to tell over because it's so mundane in my personal life. And I have no clue why it happened. I don't even know what the conclusion is from the story, but just show that Hashem is there and he's part of my life. Is when I used to live in Cincinnati, Ohio, whenever we used to visit for Shabbos, the last stop we would make on the way out of Chicago back to Cincinnati, I'm sure if you're listening, but you cannot talk now, trivia, is we would stop by Romanian and stock up and fill our freezer back in Cincinnati. This particular trip, I was checking out of the line in Romanian. And as I was literally handing my credit card to the woman to take my box and walk to my car, someone came out of the swinging door there in Romanian and screams out the following. To this very day, I will never know why she even thought to scream out the following. Does anybody here know anybody that's going to Cincinnati today? I had to like blink and (laughs) this can't be. 
I said, uh, I didn't say anything yet, too bewildered. And she said again, does anybody here know anybody that's going to Cincinnati today? And I said, well, I have to be taking this box, going to my car and driving to Cincinnati right now. She said, that's great. There was someone here from Cincinnati earlier today. They left the box here by accident. Do you mind doing Hashava Saveda and, remind, and returning that box to them? It's such a mundane story, but I share it specifically because look for those types of stories in your life, but see those as kisses from Hashem, that Hashem is part of your life. And then talk to Hashem in tefillah and in brachas. The most powerful word we say every single day is the word ata. Baruch ata Hashem. You, the fact that we can say the word ata is such a powerful statement, but it's not going to work if you're not mindful of it. And think about it every time you say a bracha. I'm very close with a certain rabbi that said he's not even so good at davening. He's good at talking to Hashem. When you find yourself in traffic, when you find yourself going through a personal struggle, just talk to Hashem. Don't have to take it at the hill necessarily, but it's advisable to take out at the hill. But you need to be mindful of this and understand that everything comes from a Kaddish Baruch. So there's so much more that could be said, but I see that we're coming close to our time being over. But that's how we have to see our relationship with Hashem. Just this past week, uh, there was an individual from New York that was trying to contact a member of the Chicago Jewish community. And he called me to ask if I could help them get in touch with each other. So he says to me, do you know so-and-so? So I wanted to show that I'm very close with this individual. I said, yeah, I'm actually particularly close with him. We speak several times a day. And that was like a sign of the closeness that I had to this particular individual. And I was thinking about it afterwards, probably because I had to prepare for tonight's presentation, is that I should feel that same closeness to Kaddish Baruch When someone says to me, do you know Hashem? Do you feel close to Hashem? I say, yeah, I feel so close to Kodesh Baruch. You know how close I am to Hashem? I speak to Hashem three times a day. But do we even see it that way? We only see davening as an opportunity to make requests from Hashem. That's not the way we should always see davening. Davening primarily is a way to connect to Kodesh Baruch with three times a day in an intimate discussion. Part of why we make requests is because it's a sign of the fact that we realize the only source of everything in life is from Hashem. The reason why we daven with our feet together, our hands together is to show I cannot move without Hashem in my life. But that's the ideas that we have to build up within ourselves to be able to understand that Hashem is really a part of our life. And when we have Hashem really part of our life, then we're able to persevere and to endure many of these struggles. There's a lot more to be said, and perhaps we'll have another opportunity to share more of the ideas and these ideas of talking to Hashem, talking about Hashem. But these are crucial to build a personal relationship with Kodesh Baruch and to realize that He loves you personally. Talk to Hashem and about Hashem before the struggles, and talk to Hashem and about Hashem during the struggles. And that gives one tremendous strength. So like we said at the beginning, it's very normal and it's justifiable. They have feelings of hurt, feelings of sadness, feelings of worry, feelings of pain. It's not a breach of emuna and Akash Baruch whatsoever. But then we have to try to build within ourselves this reservoir and fill ourselves with emuna and Akash Baruch fill ourselves with the love from Akash Baruch and to understand that there is this big picture that we cannot see. The most severe punishment they give in prison is solitary confinement. It's just impossible to feel alone. But in the Jewish community, and particularly in Chicago, you never ever have to feel alone. First of all, you organizations like Madregos and High Lifeline that will ensure that you're never alone. Second of all, in the Jewish community, we have each other. We have friends and we have neighbors and we have family. And then finally, you always, always have a Kaddish Baruch But you have to be able to feel that. And part of what you're able to do to bring that as part of reality is by talking to Hashem and talking about Hashem. We should all be Zoycha Hashem to be there for ourselves, to work on self-care. 
shall be zaycha to be more than one step ahead to fill us up completely to be able to give that over b'shefa and ashipua is hashva to our family to others around us we shall be zaycha bez Hashem to be strong Baruch Hu should give us strength and bez Hashem will bring an end to this great struggle that we're dealing with meher v'yamenu amen. Both Rabbi Dr. Fox, Rabbi Robinson, my name is Yechiel Bressler, and I'm the assistant director of school-based programs at Madragos Midwest. And on behalf of Madragos, we first of all want to thank, want to thank High Lifeline, of course, for working together. It's been such a pleasure and such a treat to work with you and Rabbi Crandall and your entire team. Thank the presenters, Rabbi Dr. Fox and Rabbi Robinson. You know, there were plenty of listeners, but even if it was just for me, it would have been Kadai, it would have been worth your time to uh, to prepare and present. It was really just truly incredible. And of course, thank you to all the listeners who were listening, who have listened, who were here, and who will listen to the recording, which will be sent out as well. Um, we advertised that we would have a number of, uh, we would have an opportunity to ask some questions. So we do, we don't want to disappoint on that. There have been a couple of questions submitted. Uh, we do know the hour is late, so perhaps we'll just, uh, We'll just take one or two questions, and then we will uh, bid everyone a good Shabbos. So the first question that I like, uh, Rabbi Dr. Fox, if you are able to to also come on screen, that would be fantastic. Um, and the first question that I would like to present is, Rabbi Dr. Fox, you mentioned that when our kids come to us and they cry or whatever it may be, or they, they have a question for us that we never, ever, ever judge. And uh, how important that is in terms of accepting and nourishing what they're feeling. So the question that was submitted is, is there ever a time to judge? Is there ever a time to give advice in these types of situations? Or should we always just give non-judgmentally? Um. I often joke that because I happen to be a therapist and a dian, I'm really the only one who's allowed to be judgmental. Um, but being judgmental or being critical when a person's in, person is in distress um, is very cruel. Um, number one, it slams the door when they're trying to open up about their distress. Uh, secondly, they're turning to that parent or to whomever um, wanting to feel better, not wanting to feel worse about what they've just shared. Now, there's a possible exception when a person might disclose that they're planning to harm themselves or to harm someone else, that we can be proactive and say, you may not do that or you can't do that. It has to be said uh, very clearly, but not in a way that clouds the parent's concern and the parent's love. So again, if someone is talking openly about wanting to cause harm or to do harm, and there's a consideration that they're going to make good, God forbid, on that threat. So then we would have to do a preemptive intervention as a parent. Um, but you, know, you, you have 
only to look at the Chassam Sofer on Parshas Vayechal, his very, very astounding wart in the name of the Shalah HaKodesh. I'll let you look at it yourself. It's a surprise pshat. Um, on the Pasuk, um, so you'll take a look at that when you go home, those of you who have access to Sforim. So even when a person is speaking about rage, a person speaking about misery, or about irrational fears, it doesn't make a difference. Our first gambit is to listen supportively, to keep that flow of disclosure going. Our first reaction is not to tell them to stop or that they shouldn't think or feel that way. Um, we listen, we validate that we understand that based on the conditions they're suffering from, of course, you're feeling sad or based on the threat that you're facing. Of course, of course, you're scared right now. So we, we, we echo back, we reflect back, we validate in the hope that they'll continue talking it through. Now, we don't do a lot of advice giving until we know A, that they want it and B, they're ready to hear it. But when a person, a child or an adult is in the middle of the frenzy of unloading their pain or their fright or their dread or, what, or whatever it might be, the part of their brain that can integrate my advice or my guidance is not very activated. And it's only through being able to talk through and process that a lot of the commotion begins to subside, at which point the other part of the brain turns on. And I never, uh, offer advice um, when a person says, what do I do? Um, I'll tell them my thought and I'll try as the Gemara says, uh, I'll try to tell them a thought that I think they can hear at that moment. Um, now parents are different than therapists. They do offer guidance. That's part of, as Rabbi Robinson, that's part of the chinuch being mechanic process. Um, but the child has to be in a state of mind when they can hear it. Um, and sometimes the most effective way to give that, pre that, that type of guidance is to say, I have a thought, let's talk about it together. Perhaps we can come up with a solution by pooling our brains. In other words, invite the child to collaborate with you in looking for the solution. Now, much younger children who don't have, as Rabbi Robinson beautifully said, they don't have the whole picture there, the, like the, the embryo inside the, the mother. They, they can see the whole world, the rest of us can't when we're young. Um, so they may need you to do the hand-holding. They may need you to do the pacing and the guiding. Um, but the response in short, I give too long an answer, but no, um, when a person's in pain, we don't judge or criticize them, either in, in those limited situations. We hear it, we're supportive, we want them to keep sharing with us and letting them know that we can hold on to, we can contain whatever it is they're trying to get out of their system. And then when it comes time to giving them guidance, we try to do that collaboratively with them. Very insightful, thank you very, very much. And in case anyone does want that hidden shot of the Sam Sofer, please 
and does not have access to this, Lauren, please feel free to reach out to any one of us or the organizations. We will make sure that we get our hands on it and provide that for you. Uh, one final question that we'll take, Rabbi Robinson, very much related to what you were discussing um, in terms of the Chinuch and the Amuna. So we know that we have a tremendous emphasis that we give an emphasis in the Chinuch in times of tragedy, in times of struggle, to turn to David Amelech's words, to turn to, to, to Tehillim, to turn to Artsfilos, to, to Daven, to talk to Hashem. How do we address it then when our kids pour their tears over the Tehillim, but the answer is not the answer they were looking for? Right. Okay, so uh, I'm glad you're asking that question because that was uh, part of my presentation that I took out for the second time. <laughs> but uh, you gave me more time, so I appreciate it. Um, so there's a lot to be said about it. Um, there are classic ideas that, you know, a tefillah is never wasted and the child does need to understand um, that the tefillah itself that they said, maybe they wanted result A, but will certainly be a schus uh, for the individual they daven for, for the family they daven for. Uh, but really, it's also important to educate them while they're davening, before there's a clear conclusion one or the other, what their mindset should be while they're davening. Um, they should not only be davening demanding a certain conclusion, control, and only a Kodesh Baruch is in control. They get daven to Hashem with the mindset of Hashem, this is what we would love to have as the result, and please, if we need the schus of our tefillos to bring about that result, please allow our tefillos to generate the merits that we need to bring about the results that we want to have for ourselves, whether it's a case of davening for a choyla or a regular application of day-to-day -day life of davening for a shidduch, and you think that person A is the person of my dreams, but you still can't say conclusively it is, so you have to daven to Hashem, if this is the way that it's supposed to go, please give me the siyat d'shmai and the assistance to get there. They have to also keep in mind that when they're davening, they're also davening that even if I don't get the results that I want to have, please allow these tefillahs to work the other way, to give me the strength, to give the family the strength, to be able to endure and to persevere the struggle that they're dealing with, or to make, give me the strength to be able to persevere if this, in fact, is not the shidduch has meant to get, or this is not the job I'm supposed to have, you know, et cetera. So I think uh, my answer for you in short is the two-prong is that, A, while you're davening, to have a proper perspective of how to daven, what you're davening for, and then after the fact, if it does not go the way you want it to go, to never think that those tefillahs were wasted. They certainly were not wasted. There's Baruch who stores up every single tefillah and will use it in the proper time uh, to help out yourself and to help out those that you dive on their behalf of. So obviously it's a much fuller topic, but that's a short answer. Thank you very much. And there are other questions that were submitted and due to the late hour and the generosity of both of you for your time, we are gonna hold them hold off on the rest of their questions. But again, please, anyone who had questions, feel free to continue to reach out with questions if anything comes up either to Madrigos or to High Lifeline or to any of the panelists individual, if I may volunteer that. And, uh, and really just thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you again, our panelists for the incredible insight into High Lifeline for everything you do for the community and for working together. We do wanna make a quick also pitch that uh, Madrigos is beginning next week a more in-depth parenting series as well. Another round of parenting in a pandemic starting next Wednesday night. First one will be given by Mrs. Fran Gutstein on the topic of accepting our current situation. So please feel free to tune into those as well. And again, thank you all for joining. We wish you all many besoros tovos, only simchas, and a tremendous comforting Shabbos. Amen. Great night. Have a good Shabbos, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you and good Shabbos. Thank you.